Joel, let me ask you please to turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. I want to um, be getting reading with verse 12 and take us through chapter 5 and verse 5. Obviously, I won't get to all that. Some of it we've covered, some we'll get to, some we'll take up today. So 1 John uh, chapter 4 and verse 12, please. Finding that, let's pray. Uh, God, um, help us now as we open your word. Um, Holy Spirit, you breathe these words out of the Apostle John. Um, these are your words to us. Enable us to know that, to hear them, knowing this is the word of God. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First John chapter 4, verse 12. This is the word of the Lord. No one has ever seen God. We love one another. God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that God the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And then we say, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. I want this morning, if God will help me, to take up just this expression um, that we'll see in the beginning of verse 20. If anyone says, I love God. Obviously, this comes in a context, and so we'll take a look at that. But I want us to think about this question. And, and personalize it, if you will. Do you say, can you say, do you say, I love God? And if so, upon what basis do you say, I love God? This is really mean when you say, I love God. Now, we are to love God. You might remember, this is in Matthew chapter 22, and other places as well, but Matthew chapter 22, verse 34, that there was someone came to Jesus, uh, 
And one of them, a lawyer, verse 35, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. So we are to love God with our entire being. Everything about us should shout, I love God. Everything about us should be motivated by this love that we have for God. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, a passage we come to often. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, when the apostle writes about those who love God, he's not writing about a special classification of Christian, and he's not writing about a particular moment in a Christian's life when that person loves God at that moment. No, no. He uses this expression, love God, as a synonym for being a Christian, for being a believer in Jesus, for being one who's saved. And he says, this is true for us as believers in Jesus because we love God and we know that for those who love him, for Christians, for those who love him, all things, he works all things together for good, right? Because we're called according to his purpose and his purpose is to conform us to the image of Christ. Ultimately, that's the good, you see, that he has in mind uh, there. And, And this love, of course, then gets very particularized in Jesus as well as Father and Holy Spirit. You'll turn back to John chapter 8, verse 39. Jesus is having an encounter again with the religious leaders of the day. And says, they answer him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I'm here. And so this this love we see is particularized in the incarnation that we are to love Jesus. In fact, Jesus puts that very starkly in Matthew and chapter 10. In verse 37, again, forgive me, I'm plucking this out of a context. He said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy worthy of me. And so Jesus said, this is, this is this, this, the sense of your love. It's, it's even greater than the love that you have for those human beings, those people that, that you really love most. Uh, and again, he lays this out in, I would even say, breathtaking terms in Luke chapter 14, in verse 25. We have it now, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, 
you can't be my disciple. Now, again, we're called to love our family, our, our spouses, our children, our parents. And, and there's an assumption that we even love ourselves and we seek the well-being of ourselves, if you will. But Jesus is, Jesus is making a comparison here. He's saying, I want you to, to get it. I want you to understand what love to me really is. Everything else is hate. But com- compared to this love that you are indeed to have for me. You remember, too, that Jesus, after his resurrection, met with Simon Peter. And Peter, who had denied Jesus, now has opportunity to listen to Jesus. And in John chapter 21, verse 15, it says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he kept asking him, do you love me? Do you love me? And, and, and so you get this sense that Peter is just answering yes to that, that he does love him. No doubt he did. And we are to love Jesus as well. Then just a couple more. First Corinthians in chapter 16. In verse 22, chilling in one sense, these words, as Paul finishes this first letter to this church, he says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, that is Jesus, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. In other words, if you don't love Jesus, then you're not saved to love him. In fact, Paul ends his letter to the church in Ephesus like this, Ephesians in chapter 6. In verse 24, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible. Uh, the New International Version puts it with, a, with an undying love, like a love that will never end, nothing that can dilute it, nothing can ever come in and, and take it away or, 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 or tarnish it, really. In fact, not even, um, not even persecution. Uh, flip back quick, if you're quick. Uh, Matthew chapter 24. In verse 9, Jesus is speaking to them, his disciples, and, and he says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. And so this love that we have for the Lord Jesus, the love that we have for God is to be an undying and incorruptible love. It's not to grow cold even when we're in the midst of persecution, even when in the midst of situations, we'll tear that all away. He says, no, 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 we need to continue. And, and Jesus would go on to say, he who perseveres, perseveres in love, perseveres in faith. He who perseveres to the end will be, will be saved. And so when we say we love God, we were saying no small thing. And we really, 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 as believers in Jesus, must sincerely, honestly be able to say it if anyone loves God. Now, how do we come to love him? Well, verse 19 says, we love because he first 
loved us. In fact, in some of the older translations, like the King James Version and so forth, they insert the, uh, the word God in there. We love God because he first loved us. It's not in the best manuscripts. It's really best simply to leave it as we have it here. Uh, we love because he first loved us. But, but you can understand why uh, perhaps some early scribes would have uh, put in the word God, because contextually, He's, uh, Jesus, I mean, uh, John goes on to say, if anyone says, I love God, so we love God, so they would insert it just to, to help us. But, but, but this context is also about loving one another. So best to say, we love God and others. We love because he first loved us. The point is that love, this love that we have for God and for each other, originates with God himself. It isn't that we loved God, so he loved us. It's that he loved us, so we loved him. It isn't that you love me, so I love you. It's that I love you. So we love because he first loved us. You see, this love of God evokes love, works in such a way that results in love. And you can say, well, why can't we just take advantage of that love? I mean, let's face it, we do it with each other, and we do it with others from time to time. We take advantage of their love, and we don't really love because they love. We loved us, but uh, why wouldn't we take advantage of this love of God and just say, thanks so much for saving me. Now I'm off to do my own thing. And the answer is that's preposterous. It's utterly preposterous. It's unimaginable. If you really know the love of God, it would be unimaginable. If you really receive the love of God, it's unimaginable that would you just simply turn away and go your own way. Turn to Luke in chapter 7. I won't read all of this. I'll paraphrase some and read some. I suppose if you're a Bible reader, I trust you know this incident in the life of Jesus. He was invited to one of the religious leaders of Pharisees, one of the religious leaders' home for dinner, a dinner party. And uh, this man's name was Simon. And uh, Jesus was there. Now, if you could picture the scene, I trust, I trust you can in, in, in the days in which Jesus lived. Uh, first of all, uh, they didn't sit around a table as you and I sit around a table to eat. They reclined. So there would be sort of couches all sort of facing into a central table. And the ones who were there eating would recline on those couches most of the time, I suppose, if they're right-handed, leaning on their left side and taking food and so forth from the table with their right hand and, and eating. So you can get that picture. And so Jesus' head would be close to the food. His feet would be away. And also realize that the, the courtyards in those days were open. Uh, and so it wouldn't be unusual for a crowd to gather, even a crowd made up of people who weren't invited to the dinner party, but a crowd would gather outside of the party to watch, especially if there was a celebrity or an important person who was invited to dinner. Jesus was such a person, so people would be there. And you know that in this particular incident, that there was a woman there who's described as a sinful woman. And she came in where Jesus was, and she began to weep. And as she wept, her tears fell upon his feet. Think about the kind of weeping that would allow for tears to actually fall from one's face in such a way as to 
clean dirt off of a person's feet. She was really weeping. And then she took her hair and she dried his feet. And then she took some ointment that she had and anointed his feet. Now Simon was driven up the wall by that. He was crazed by this. Not so much, I suspect, that this woman came in. Not even so much. I suspect that somehow she cleaned Jesus' feet. It probably improved the aroma of the, of, of, of the circle. I don't know. But what crazed him, what made him really upset was that this woman was a sinful woman, and Jesus, who was supposed to be a holy man, like Simon was a holy man, uh, Jesus allowed her to touch him. So Jesus tells this story. You can see it in verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. That would be the equivalent of about 500 days' work. Not maybe a couple of years worth of work. And the other 50. So a couple of months worth of work. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them would love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from, t- from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, we don't know about how this woman knew that Jesus was the one who could forgive her sins. There's, there's, no, there's no introduction to her. Jesus goes on to say, your sins are forgiven. But clearly, she knew. She knew who he was. And she knew her great debt had been paid. But Simon didn't think he had a debt at all. And that's the very point that Jesus is making for us. That when we see the love of Christ, when we see his love, you see, we know what we've been forgiven. And when we know what we've been forgiven, how can we not love? J.C. Ryle, a 19th century Anglican bishop who's very well known in our circles, um, put it like this. He says, does the debtor in jail love the friend who unexpectedly and undeservedly pays all his debts, supplies him with fresh capital, takes him into partnership with himself, Does the prisoner of war love the man who, at the risk of his own life, breaks through the enemy lines, rescues him, and sets him free? Does the drowning sailor love the man who plunges into the sea, drives after him, catches him by the hair of his head, and by a mighty effort saves him from a watery grave? A very child can answer such questions as these. Just the same, upon the same principles. A true Christian loves Jesus Christ. See, when you see it, when you know that you're the woman in this story, whose sins, real sins, have really been forgiven, and you couldn't have done anything yourself about that. You wouldn't have done anything yourself about that. But someone came and did it for you. What's your response to that person? He says that we would... 
We would love him. Put more bluntly, a couple of centuries before, in 1663, Thomas Watson wrote a book initially entitled The Divine Cordial, now has been reprinted called All Things for Good. It's an exposition of Romans 8.28, which we read a few moments ago, wrote only as a 17th century Puritan would or could. He says, he who does not love God is a beast with a man's head. Oh, wretch, do you live upon God every day, yet not love him? If one of Fred that supplied him continually with money and gave him all this allowance, were he not worse than a barbarian who did not respect and honor that friend? Such a friend is God. He gives you breath. He bestows a livelihood upon you. And will you not love him? Uh, you will love your prince if he saves your life. And will you not love God who gives you your life? What other one is so powerful to draw love as the blessed deity? He's blind whom beauty does not tempt. He is foolish who is not drawn with the cords of love the body is cold and has no heat in it. It's a sign of death that man is dead who has no heat of love in his soul to God. Right? And I, as I read those passages this week in those books, Ra's book is called Holiness. It broke me again, as these passages always do. But no more than John's words when he says, if anyone says, I love God. How many times have I said, I love the Lord? I say it many times in my own mind a day. I say it as I go to sleep at night. I say it when I wake up in the morning. And this passage then asks me, do you? Do you love him? And the first, first thing I must rehearse is, is, is the extent to which, the degree to which, the profoundness with which I have been forgiven, the great love, as the scripture says, with which he has loved me when I was dead in my trespasses and sins. He made me alive together with Christ. To think that through often in a day. Then John goes on to say some other things as well about how, how we know that we love God, how we express that, if you will, how that works itself out in our lives, how we look upon our lives and say, oh, I do love him because I see this and I see this and I see this. And, and what John does here just as we've been reading through this letter, as he, as he pulls from everything he's already said. Remember, we've said that, that John's talking about we can be assured that we know God. We can be assured that he abides in us and we in him. We can be sure that we've passed from death to life because we believe in Jesus, the true Jesus, the Son of God, God who became flesh and dwelt among us. We believe in Jesus. So that doctrinal test, as we've said 
and, and because we obey his commandments. He said, not perfectly, but we know that his love, this love that is poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, this love which sent Jesus to be the propitiation of our sins, this love is perfected, it reaches its goal, its, its, its aim, if you will, its purpose. When we, when we obey, we're inclined to follow him, keep his word, and when we love each other. So John pulls upon all of those in, in this last section here. For instance, back to 1 John in chapter 4. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. By this point in the letter, John couldn't have said anything more predictable than that. We've been hearing it and hearing it. In fact, if we had been reading the Bible, he couldn't have said anything more predictable than that. We go back to the, uh, the words of Jesus. Uh, what is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And even when Jesus with his, was with his disciples, he said, this is going to mark you out as being mine if you love each other as I've loved you. In fact, John makes reference to that, this new commandment that isn't really new because we're always to love our neighbor as ourselves. The newness is Christ has come. and We love as he's loved us, you see. And then John says something that I must confess upon first blush, I see. And then as I think about it more, I wonder about. And he says, if anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God um, whom he has not seen. And, and what John is doing here is he's, he's arguing from the easiest to the hardest. He's saying, if you can't do the easy thing, then you can't do the hard thing. And the easy thing is to love your brother whom you've seen. The hard thing is to love God whom you haven't seen. And sometimes I wonder about that because God is, is really lovable. <laughs> and my brother, whom I have who I can see, or sister sometimes isn't, and I'm often that brother who isn't lovable either. But you can see me, and, and, but, but we get it. And we get it because love for John, love for our brothers, as he puts it in chapter 4, verse 18, he says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. In other words, for, for, for John, love is not, not simply an affection, but, but it's a doing. Uh, for, for John, love is saying, I see my brother in need, I will help him. I see my sister in need, I will help her. Uh, and so we can see that. And so John is just simply catching us up and saying, uh, can't you see the needs that your brother has? Can't you see the needs that your sister has? If you can't meet those, how can you love God? To love one another. God says that pleases me. I know that you love me when you love each other. And in this second test, he says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whomever has been born of him. So again, he just says it again, except now he adds this, this doctrinal test. He says, anyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And, and thus loves God, you see. 
To be born of God is to believe in Jesus and to love him and those whom he loves. By this we know that we love the children of God. We love God and obey his commandments for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. So this third test then for that love of God is that we keep his commandments. Again, no surprise, Jesus said on the night that he was betrayed, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. Now somehow, I think, we have it in our minds that love and obedience are somehow contradictory. <laughs> then that when we think of obedience, we think of the law, we think of the law, we think of, oh, I'm going to do something wrong here, and, and a rule or a regulation. But love to someone always means that I desire, I hope to, my goal is to please them. That's what love takes joy in pleasing another. Sometimes young people, usually men, young men come to me and say, there's this woman I think I want to marry and I think I love her. Can you tell me how can I know that I really love her to marry her? And of course, I roll my eyes because I really can't do that. But I can suggest at least this. There's a list of things, but at least this. Do you find great joy in sacrificing for her well-being that she might be blessed? And if the answer to that is no, then I say, well, then forget it. If it's yes, I say, well, then let's keep exploring this. Because to really love means I find great joy in pleasing you, God. What makes you happy? What pleases you? What honors you? What blesses you? The psalmist, bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. How do we bless the Lord? Well, we can say, I love you. We can worship him. We can say things that are true of him and embrace them and believe them. But what blesses the Lord too is we do that which pleases him. And what pleases him? Well, he says, here's what to obey. Here's my word. Obey it. If you do this out of love for me, if you do it with joy, knowing that it pleases me, then, then I'm blessed, the Lord says. So we, we know that we love him when we bless him. And how do we bless him? We bless him by obeying his commandments. In fact, that little expression, obey his commandments, incorporates everything that John is talking about. You might remember from chapter 3, verse 21, he says, Beloved, if our heart doesn't condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. Because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. So when we're believing in him, we're actually obeying him, pleasing him. The Lord is pleased when we trust in Jesus. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. 
Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. So he pleases him. But then this expression, his commands are not burdensome. Now that doesn't mean they're not difficult. That doesn't mean they're not hard. There are times when we sacrifice a great deal, when we feel the pain of believing in Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself, himself, himself tells us about the sacrifice. He, he, he says, the world has hated me, therefore the world will hate you. We don't feel that at every moment in time, of course, but we get what he's saying. So if you're going to follow after me, that makes you really different from the world and how the world thinks and operates. And there'll be times when that will come against you. We can see it throughout history and persecution of believers. We can see it in our own lives in various ways, perhaps even in the context of your own family. Jesus said it will be true that a father may turn against a son, a son against a father brother against the sister. Why? Because if one is a believer, the other may turn away. Some of you, I know, have experienced deep hardship in following Christ. It may happen in a work situation. It, it may be that you actually fell in love with an unbeliever and everything in you desired to marry that person, and yet you knew you could not. And while the turning away was honoring to God, it was painful and it was hard, and you know that. I trust you have your own lists of what's difficult in following Jesus and loving others. It isn't the easiest thing. When Karen and I used to do a lot of premarital counseling, we, we loved doing it, but at the end of the night, we would look at each other and we would say, they have no idea what we just said. Oh, we talked about it. They gave illustrations from their own lives. We gave illustrations from our life. We talked about all that, but they don't know. And one of the reasons I'm glad that we pass this along to others to do is because usually after those nights, we'd rehearse all the difficulties in our own marriage, and, and it just usually didn't do well for me, but uh, being the cause of most of those difficulties. But, but after 40, whatever it's been for us, I should know, seven years, eight years of marriage, we know the reality of what it means to love. If you've been in the church any period of time, you know the reality that love can sometimes be the easiest thing and sometimes the most difficult things. You know, we come from different backgrounds. We come from different experiences. We come from different families. We may come from different parts of the country. We may come from different parts of the world. We may come from different parts of the social structure that exists in, 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 in America And yet we're all thrown together as brothers and sisters now with the Heavenly Father. And if you're an earthly father, 
Because if you're an earthly father like me, you know one of the greatest joys in my life as a father is when my children are all together and they're having fun together and they're, they're just having a great time. And one of the most painful times as a father is when there's even this much that's causing division. And so we know with our heavenly father, I suspect it's even more in him. And he throws us together and he says, love each other as I've loved you. And the way that he's loved us is as to, to come to be among us. As Hebrews chapter four says of Jesus, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who's made like us in every way yet without sin. And so we have a high priest who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He understands us. He's entered into our lives. And so the, the real cost, you see, is entering into each other's lives for real. To a point where we can be able to sympathize with each other. Understand each other as best we can. Know our own frailties. Jesus never had to go there. We do. Love each other. Paul puts it like this. It's the only way to say it. But he puts it like this in Romans in chapter 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ didn't please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. And through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This doesn't mean that we look over each other's sin and just ignore it. But even then, when we confront it with each other, we do so in sympathy, knowing how God in Christ Jesus has accepted us. But here's the point. None of that is burdensome. Hard, but not burdensome. In other words, it's not a weight that, that, that sits upon us that we dread. No, there's a joy that comes from it. There's a real joy that comes from loving God, even in the hard places, maybe most particularly in the hard places, to loving each other in the hard places, maybe most particularly in the hard places, by obeying even in the difficult times. There's a sense then of satisfaction, I would suggest to you, and joy that might be unspeakable. So I'm not going to speak of it because I don't even know that I can put it in words. But you know it when it happens. It's not burdensome. It's not burdensome. One commentator puts it like this. For love, no duty is too hard, no task too great. That which we would never do for a stranger, we will willingly attempt for a loved one. That which we would never give to a stranger, we will gladly give to a loved one. That which would be an impossible sacrifice if a stranger demanded it. 
becomes a willing gift when love needs it. We haven't lived until we've gotten there. Can't help but think of Jesus and the revelation to John, the church of Ephesus. Ephesus. And he says, you've lost your first love. Ephesus was a great church. A great church. They, they could discern false teachers and expel them. They, could, they didn't follow after the evil and immoral ways of others. But somehow, some way, this loss of their first love, that is the motivating force for all that they were doing, wasn't love for God, wasn't love for each other. Idolatries, no doubt, had crept in and, and, and other things became enthroned rather than God. Uh, a lack of entering into one another's lives. Go back, he says. To, like it was in the beginning. And I don't think he's giving them a list of things to do, do these things that you did at first. Nor is he, he, he not saying that there's a, a maturity in love that's different than a love that is, is first new. But what he's saying, go back to the beginning, the things done then, because those things were done out of love. Not out of burdensome obligation. Not out of duty, but delight. To love God. Why? He's loved us. How can we not? To love each other. Why? Because God's loved us. How can we not love the ones he loves? To obey him. Why? Because his commands aren't burdensome. Why aren't they? Because they come from God, and he loves us. Let's pray. Father, pray for us. Please help us. You say, God, that your word is alive. So I pray that your word would work itself deep within us. To go where nothing else can really go, into our very hearts and that this love that you have for us in our Lord Jesus would transform us, that we would obey you even in the hard places, that we, we would witness of you, believe in Jesus, witness of you, testify to the truth of the gospel, even in the hard places, and we would love each other, even in the hard places. That you would prove yourself faithful to us, and we would look back and say, that sacrifice was no burden. In Jesus' name, amen.